I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Sam Bendit. Sam is a CNA advisor focusing on Russian military technology and capabilities, drones, robotic and autonomous military systems, and an AI. His research focuses on Russian defense and technology developments, uncrewed robotic and autonomous military systems, artificial intelligence, and Russian military capabilities. Sam's analysis, views, and commentary in Russia's military robotics, autonomous systems, and artificial intelligence capabilities have appeared in numerous global publications and news outlets. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So your specialty, I mean, we're going to get into mostly here the Russia-Ukraine conflict and kind of the use of AI, drones, unmanned aircraft and other systems. One thing I did read that was really interesting just to set the table here, you had a comment on your website that Russia hosted the Army 2022 Military Expo. And this is August 15 of 2022 near Moscow. Attendance was 1.9 million people from 85 countries, 1,500 exhibitions, over 20,000 military weapons and systems with small army 2022 satellite events taking part across Russia as well. So could you maybe just set the scope here about how large this military industrial complex has become in terms of like an economic growth engine for a lot of people? So Russia's defense industrial sector in general is one of the largest in the world, and it is certainly one of the largest in Eurasia. Russia has rebuilt a lot of its military and industrial capabilities following the collapse of the Soviet Union. It concentrated on some industries more so than on others. But in general, this is basically a very diverse portfolio which manufactures and fields some of the most advanced and capable weapons in the world. And this includes anything from nuclear submarines to surface ships to, of course, land-based, air-based weapons, as well as a range of other systems that function in practically all domains in the air, at sea, on the ground, in space, in information space, and in cyberspace. You're referring to an event from last year. We actually, we meaning my team, we're, we are observing the conclusion of the event that took place this year. So Army 2023 just finished, just wrapped up. 
It, it ended on Sunday. It started last Monday, basically went all of last week. The attendance was about a million people or so, and multiple types of military systems were presented. This year and last year's exhibitions featured a lot of technologies that Russia is fielding in the war, in its invasion against Ukraine. It is designing for this effort. And a lot of concepts, different types of concepts for weapons and systems were likewise fielded. The forum that you were uh, mentioning, the Army Forum, is an annual discussion. It's an annual exhibition, annual forum, which has become the biggest such event in Russia. Prior to that, prior to 2015, there were multiple military forums showcasing Russian military capabilities. Over time, Army annual event became the largest and the biggest. And it basically brings together all of Russia's defense industrial complex. It brings together a lot of international partners and a lot of international visitors. And of course, once Russia invaded Ukraine and the international situation has changed, there were fewer visitors to this forum from some parts of the world, but other countries and regions are just as active as ever. And so at this event last week and last year, there was a lot of activity by the Chinese exhibitors and delegations, Indian, Iranian delegations from the Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the regions that Russia wants to maintain contacts with and expand their military presence in when it comes to military and defense exports. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't get a lot of coverage in the mainstream media, but obviously it's a huge part of their economy. I'm curious, you seem like you've been tracking this for a while. Before the Ukrainian invasion, would NATO members and Western countries attend these events? Yes. This event launched in 2015. And so last week's event was the ninth annual event. And so there were delegations, there were observers. In fact, a lot of Western observers were there between, I believe, between 2016 and 2020. Obviously, things that changed in 2021 and 2022. But yes, this event was public. It was open to the world until the invasion of Ukraine. And people simply had to get official permission from the organizers. Of course, the organizers are the Ministry of Defense. And those who don't have it just needed a visa to travel and make their own arrangements. This event takes place at the Patriot Park facility, which is a huge expo built outside of Moscow specifically for these type of large-scale events. And so again, all you needed to do before Russia's invasion of Ukraine and obviously before COVID hit and uh, all the restrictions were in place was to make your own travel arrangements and uh, get a permission and get a visa. So there were Western observers. There were even Western military journalists looking at what Russia has displayed. And of course, this is, on one hand, it's Russia's biggest military event. On the other hand, it is a niche event in that sense that it only encompasses sort of the military defense security interests of those who are either exhibiting or attending. The event is also basically a way and an avenue for domestic enterprises, domestic companies to show their technologies, their concepts, their developments, either in process with the MOD acquisition pipelines or those hoping to sell to the Russian MOD and the military and maybe get government contracts. So this year, for example, there were lots and lots of companies exhibiting FPV-type drones. These are the racing drones that have become extremely effective and extremely deadly in the war in Ukraine. They are much cheaper than the standard commercial quadcopters from companies like DJI and Autel. They could be assembled for just a few hundred dollars, but they can carry an RPG warhead or a fairly powerful bomb. So 
a drone that can cost just under $1,000 to manufacture, can cause a lot of damage with military systems that cost many hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of dollars. And so there were multiple Russian companies displaying their FPV drones, but they were and all basically the same designs and the same models. And could you define FPV? Right. FPV is acronym for first person view. Right. So, and so that's actually, it's like what we would think of as a video game almost. Like there's an operator who's actually seeing what the drone is seeing and operating right. it in, in real time. Yeah. Right, right. And so there were multiple exhibits and multiple companies presenting basically the same type of technology. And so this happens all the time at this type of event. There's lots of companies hoping to offer their military tech. A lot of these are self-initiated projects, and a lot of them are similar to other projects displayed already at the Army, you know, at any Army annual event or maybe already in the field. And so the point is, Russians are saying that there were thousands of different companies present at this year's event. There were lots of companies present at last year's event. There were questions about Army 2022, which took place less than half a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, whether or not international delegations would show, whether the Russian defense industry would actually showcase its, its achievements, its potential, its technologies. In fact, they did. And so this event has absorbed some of the smaller exhibits and military forums across Russia to become the biggest and most powerful exhibition and military forum. Part of that, of course, is a set of discussions and roundtables held in both public and classified settings, dealing with the effects of the war in Ukraine on the Russian defense industry and some of the biggest issues facing militaries around the world writ large. And so there were lots of discussions at this year's forum, which is part of this Army 2023 exhibit in general, that dealt with robotics, UAVs, artificial intelligence, military medicine, development of cadres, development of logistics, and other issues. And I, I want to be, you know, when you read about these events, often we'll just say drone or UAV. Could you help us break down the difference between a commercial consumer drone, military drone, and a UAV? Well, that difference is completely blurred in Ukraine. And you asked a very good question, because right now in Ukraine, both sides are using drones designed for commercial use. We're talking about Chinese-made DJI lineup, the DJI Mavic, Matrix, and many others. Chinese-made Autel drones, but it's mostly DJI, really, that has become what some of the Russian military called the new face of warfare, meaning these commercial drones are very quickly adopted for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capabilities, for target tracking, for guiding artillery and mortar positions two targets, and then they were rigged to drop bombs and munitions, light grenades and others on top of enemy soldiers, on top of systems, weapons, armored vehicles, tanks, basically anything you have it. A lot of videos that are available, which are streamed live from Ukraine, are actually filmed from quadcopters. And so I would say before, maybe we have to go even further back than just this particular invasion of Ukraine because commercial drones were utilized in the initial war between Russia and Ukraine back in 2014 and 2015. It was a new technology and it wasn't utilized in large quantities. But a lot of people on both sides of the barricades essentially understood the significance of getting a cheap commercial quadcopter and turning it into a military weapon. Now, of course, a quadcopter like that, like a DJI drone, is going to be very different than a military design drone even one that has a short range. And so both Russia and Ukraine operate a number of military-designed and military-fielded UAVs, also for the same type of duties like intelligence, surveillance, 
and reconnaissance for the same type of missions. But those drones fly much farther than a commercial quadcopter or an FPV drone. They carry different sensor package. They can carry different munitions package as well. And so both sides went into the war with an arsenal of military drones. Russia boasted of around 2,000 UAVs prior to February 2022, mostly in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions, some of which were mid-range combat missions, Ukraine for combat purposes. Ukraine also featured a number of military design and military fielded drones for ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, as well as combat capability. But a lot of these drones were very quickly complemented by commercial technology like the quadcopter. And then towards the end of last year, both sides started using FPV drones in huge quantities because both quadcopter and an FPV drone are tactical weapon. They operate at short ranges and soldiers basically use them as sophisticated grenades. One Russian soldier called his FPV drone basically an ability to throw a grenade three miles out at the speed of 50 miles an hour. And this is the capability that did not exist before with tactical formations, because tactical formations in militaries around the world had to rely on different military systems and different types of UAVs and aerial assets to deliver that capability. And so the line between a commercial and a military drone is basically completely erased in the war in Ukraine. The FPV drones are commercial drones. You can buy all components you need to build and assemble your own FPV drone. You can 3D print or cut the frame out of carbon, out of wood, out of metal, but all the wires, the motors, the rotors, the electronics, the camera, the battery, all of that is commercially available and mostly from China. And so this commercial capacity has now crossed almost completely into the military domain, so much so that China is now instituting a ban on certain types of UAVs that cannot be exported around the world. And they're talking about longer range commercial drones, which likewise were repurposed by both sides for the military, especially Ukraine, because Russia constantly complains that Ukraine is using a Mujin 5 Pro commercial drone with a range of several hundred kilometers, which was designed to carry cargo. And now these commercial drones are used in the war by both sides very successfully. And when we read about the drones being purchased from Turkey and Iran. Are those commercial drones? No, no. Those are military. Those are, yeah, those are military grade drones. From Turkey, Ukraine got the Bayraktar TB2 drone, which is a mid-range, mid-altitude combat drone for advanced combat missions and for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Ukraine got other Bayraktar models from, from Turkey as well. Russia got a long-range loading munition or one-way kamikaze drone from Iran, the Shahed. And it's been in the news basically every week with publications like New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, practically every major global and domestic news outlet has at one point or another covered the use of these Shahed drones by Russians. And initially, Iran supplied kits to be assembled in Russia. And now Russia is actually building a huge factory in its hinterland east of Moscow to assemble these drones in very large quantities. And uh, there was a very big and detailed report from Washington Post recently, which described this factory and the goals basically in three stages, that Russia would first assemble Iranian drones uh, from Iranian kits. Then it would start assembling these drones with Russian airframes and some Iranian components, followed by a switch to a fully domestic production of these drones. These are 
Military long-range drones, Bayraktar can fly for several hundred kilometers. The Shahed drone has a range of up to a thousand kilometers. It's used in Ukraine on much in much shorter ranges, but both are very devastating weapons. And especially the Kamikaze drone, because it costs a fraction of what a single Bayraktar can cost. A single Shahed drone can cost anywhere from $20,000 to $50,000 to build, assemble, and field, while a drone like Bayraktar costs several million dollars. And so this war is actually reshaping our understanding of how commercial technology and military technology can work together, can function together, can overlap and completely complement each other in a conflict like Ukraine and possibly going forward. Right. And, and that's why I wanted to set the table with the expo that took place in Russia, because it seems like this usage of drones and, and UAVs and some of these 3D printed bombs, etc., it's like this perfect marriage between the private industrial defense complex and what's taking place on the ground in this conflict. Did you, as an expert, see this development coming? Or was it just out of necessity that Russia ran out of their military drone inventory and Ukraine just doesn't have enough bodies, so they needed to leverage technology to help kind of fight this fight on the ground? Well, we saw some patterns basically on the wall. Some writing was already on the wall prior to the February 22 invasion of Ukraine because Ukraine and Russia indicated that they're going to be acquiring small-scale quadcopters or commercial-type technologies, integrating them into their military operations, concepts, tactics, and practices. There was also a hint that both countries would basically launch the production of military-grade quadcopters and short-range UAVs for their military as well. But as was discussed earlier in the initial months of the invasion, no one really anticipated how this war would play out. No one could actually predict how the Russian military would basically operate and how many mistakes it would make. No one actually could predict how successful Ukrainian organization and defense would be. So no one really could predict that this war could stretch well into 2023 and now into 2024. And of course, with that, no one could actually predict that commercial technologies would take such center stage in this war, especially now that most of the conflict is actually held at the tactical level as the Ukrainians are advancing against Russian positions and Russian trenches and defense fortifications. And frankly, I was one of the people who could not really foresee that Russia would turn to Iran for drones. We actually published a short report right before it was clear that Russia would invade Ukraine. And we proposed and we theorized that Russia may turn to China to acquire military-grade drones because of a growing relationship between the Russian and Chinese military-industrial complexes, between the governments, their joint drills and exercises, and likewise. The Iranian acquisition was probably not surprising in hindsight, but very surprising when it actually was announced. And again, Iran has provided Russia with a capability it did not have on its own, and the drone that it provided is relatively cheap, so much so that other countries are now looking at acquiring this Shahed-like capability from Iran, because many countries may not have several million dollars to purchase an advanced combat UAV like Bayraktar, for example, which is also sold quite well around the world. But many countries have, let's say, several million dollars to purchase a large number of Iranian-type Shahed drones, which can serve a lot of, a lot of missions and can be a both an asset for attack and an asset for a deterrent. And so this war is kind of shaping our perceptions of what kind of UAVs 
are becoming necessary, are becoming a must-have for global militaries, and what kind of UAVs other militaries should really concentrate on. This war, of course, and the use of commercial technologies doesn't cancel out the use of military-grade drones, the use of long-range and heavy drones, which United States, Israel, China, Turkey, and Iran also have, and other countries want. But this does change how certain types of UAVs, certain type of quadcopters, certain type of FPV drones are now utilized at the tactical level. One thing that is becoming very clear, if you look at social media, if you look at multiple videos, if you look at the nonstop stream of videos coming from the front, is that you are practically seen everywhere and anywhere when you fight. And that wasn't the case before. In order to get a full observation of combat or of battle below, countries needed to launch aircraft and helicopters and direct satellites at certain parts of the front. It was a relatively costly and intensive affair. Now, a force can simply launch several quadcopters and you can cover significant parts of the front and you as an adversary or you as a defending or attacking force can be seen. You will be observed chances are you will be observed, tracked, and possibly even targeted. And so the use of these commercial technologies at the tactical level, anywhere between several miles to, let's say, 20 to 30 miles, makes uh, large-scale movement very costly, very dangerous, and it makes it essentially problematic to mass your forces in any one location because you can be seen and you can be observed. And this is one of the biggest lessons that the American military and the Western militaries are taking from this war that this type of combat, next combat, is going to be one where it would be very difficult for you to avoid being seen by your adversary. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. I understand the tactical discussions, which are fascinating, but on a strategic level, does this even the playing field in a lot of ways when a smaller country with less armaments, a smaller military complex, less soldiers can go up against a larger force like Russia? Is that what we're seeing play out here in Ukraine? In a manner of speaking, Russian and Ukrainian militaries are considered peer adversaries because both can field very large number of troops, as well as very large number of different types of military systems, and both have advanced military industrial complexes. But yes, a small country, for example, that does not have a lot of advanced assets can potentially, we don't know how that will happen, but it can potentially acquire a number of military technologies like, for example, Shahed drone and a number of commercial drones that could be repurposed for the military and acquire this intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and combat capability that it didn't have before, a capability that earlier it would have to invest very heavily in essentially procuring manned aircraft and manned helicopters. But we've seen this happen actually even before this invasion of Ukraine and even before the 2014-2015 clash between Russia and Ukraine because Non-state actors, non-state military formations, terrorist organizations have been using these commercial drone technologies, the DIY technologies, the do-it-yourself, basically efforts to assemble very simple drones to conduct different types of missions. And these type of drones are still flown, for example, in conflicts across the Middle East and North Africa. And so it doesn't take a lot anymore to acquire your own drone force. But the most important part here 
is training and pilots. You can, of course, acquire these drones, but you need experienced pilots to pilot them. And so both sides in Ukraine are now investing heavily in training FPV and quadcopter drone operators. Russia, of course, brought Iranian instructors to Russia to have Iranians teach Russians how to fly these Shahed drones. At one point, the training facility that was located in Crimea was hit by Ukrainians. And so Russians moved that training to Russia proper. So you need to train how to use these drones. But what's also happening right now is with all the knowledge out there on how to assemble, how to pilot these drones, how to operate these drones, this knowledge is spreading. And so both sides in Ukraine, for example, have even produced manuals, tactical manuals on how to fly these drones, how to avoid being seen, how to avoid adversary countermeasures. And of course, even before this war, as I mentioned, a lot of this knowledge was around in major conflict zones. So yes, these commercial drones, these commercial UAVs are in fact changing the nature of warfare. The big question is, what are the countermeasures to these technologies? What is the state and the level of electronic warfare, as well as air defense systems to target these drones? And there's plenty of evidence that both sides are now investing heavily in tactical level counter UAV systems and electronic warfare systems like handheld counter UAS rifles that emit a signal that disrupts drone operations and its communication with the operator, for example. Both sides are investing in large-scale and portable electronic warfare system that likewise jam the signals. And both sides are using electronic warfare and different types of air defense and counter UAV systems around their major locations, military and civilian facilities to try to safeguard against the other side launching missile or drone attacks. And that was my follow-up question, which is exactly that understands the offensive capabilities. But what about on the defensive side? Because it seems like Ukraine has had some decent success, at least making headlines, infiltrating Russian airspace. There's some conversation whether or not the attack on the Kremlin was a false flag event. But it seems like weekly, if not daily, there's an article about a Moscow apartment building or some type of infrastructure that's been targeted by these drones and UAVs. What about the defensive capabilities of the countermeasures that these companies or re- countries rather are using to push back against these type of attacks? Well, just yesterday, there was news that a Russian military air- airfield, which uh, houses Tupolev 22 strategic bombers, was attacked by a small scale UAV, possibly even a quadcopter. So it doesn't take an expensive long-range kamikaze drone like the ones that were striking Moscow or the ones that attacked a military air base late last year in Russia to cause a lot of damage. A lot of this damage can now be caused by commercial short-range technologies. And both sides are using different methods to guide their UAVs to target, to develop different types of technologies to target each other's military and civilian facilities. Of course, Ukraine is capable of interdicting a lot of Russian missiles and a lot of Russian Shahed drones, but it cannot shoot down all of them. And so Ukrainian attack against Moscow, against the Russian airfields, as well as military and economic infrastructure are a response to Russia's using these Shahed drones against Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, cities and military facilities. Both sides now have the capacity to field drones that can fly for several hundred kilometers. In other words, penetrate deep inside the country. And air defense capabilities or electronic warfare capabilities are not absolutes. They can be present in one part of the country or on on one part of the border, but there would be gaps. And there would be gaps that could be exploited by, for example, Russians or Ukrainians in trying to attack. When 
Ukraine launched multiple attacks against Moscow with their long-range kamikaze drones. For example, it appears that they had good intel and they have plotted the course away from Russian big cities, away from Russian highways, away from populated areas, so that those drones were seen only at the last moment in the Moscow region and then, of course, in Moscow proper. The Shahed drones that Russia is using against Ukraine are, for example, very loud, very noisy uh, UAVs, and oftentimes they could be heard before they're seen, and that leads to uh, Ukrainian height rate of success against these drones. Again, not all of those are shut down, but it only takes one drone to make it through. So both sides are pressured to invest a lot in different types of multi-layered air defense capabilities to make sure that they can interdict and negate and neutralize this type of aerial threat. And another topic I wanted to get in with you is there's been a lot of coverage about usage for armies, right? These land tactics. But I was reading this article over the weekend in The Economist about the attack on the Moskva, the sinking of the Moskva in the Black Sea fleet of Russia. And it, it seems the speculation is that it was you know, predominantly drones and UAVs. What's happening on the naval front where these countries are using these types of tactics to kind of balance the scales or really change you know, the playing field in terms of naval warfare? So the sinking of the Moskva cruiser last year was actually done by Ukrainian missiles, while a Ukrainian UAV like Bayraktar may have provided reconnaissance capability and guiding capability. So it's likely that UAVs were involved, but the ship was actually sunk by a missile. What we're seeing right now is Ukraine invest heavily in maritime drone capability. The uncrewed surface vessels, or USVs, are used extensively by Ukraine right now to try and target Russian naval facilities in the Crimea and in Russia proper. And there's been multiple different types of these USVs fielded by Ukraine, multiple generations in a very short amount of time. What this means is that these type of vessels are usually traveling at a relatively high speed, but they can also, they have a fairly low silhouette in the water. So they are, unlike a regular naval vessel, they are really not seen until the last moment. And so some of them have even stealthy shapes specifically for that purpose. And so Ukraine has invested in different types of USV. Some of them can carry a very significant explosive package up to 800 kilograms. And Ukraine is using these type of USVs to attack ships at sea, ships at port, to attack port facilities, as well as Russia's Kerch Bridge, which is the big infrastructure project that connects Russia proper with the Crimea. And so it is possible to interdict and destroy these USVs. There's videos of Russians actually being successful in targeting them. But also if an attack is carried out at night, for example, it's difficult to see that USV and it can cause a lot of damage. And so some of those successful Ukrainian strikes were done by these USVs at night. Ukraine also launches an attack or launched several attacks against Russian port facilities using UAVs working with USVs. So. It's not quite the swarm yet, but it is kind of heading there in that direction. And so Ukraine is raising a lot of money from volunteers from all over the world to build this capability. And in many ways, this capability is actually well ahead of even some of the more advanced capabilities that were available previously. Taking a step back and, and looking at kind of the big geopolitical picture here, you've referenced obviously Russia and Ukraine a lot, as well as China. Where is the U.S. in terms of its development of 
UAVs, drones, AI, robotics. Are we on par with these other countries? United States as a global leader and other countries are looking to the United States when it comes to the development and fielding of different types of UAVs and military robotics. Certainly China does, certainly, and certainly Russia does as well. But other countries have quickly joined a very small circle of uh, high-tech nations capable of fielding such weapons and systems. And so before the February 2022 invasion, really when you talked about military long-range UAVs, you talked about United States, Israel, and China as the leading nations with others trying to kind of build that capability. Now, Turkey and Iran are firmly in that circle as well with their domestic capabilities, which are quite advanced and which are selling rather well around the world, including, for example, Turkish Bayraktar drones and other UAVs as well. And so Ukraine has taken a, a technological leap in fielding a lot of systems that we didn't really have before in large quantities, because before a military-grade USV, for example, or unmanned underwater vehicle would take years to develop, years to test, there would be a lot of the schedule for acquiring this drone could be quite lengthy in the absence of a large scale military conflict. Well, Ukraine doesn't have that luxury. And so Ukraine literally had just a few months to develop and test and field these drones. So what we have right now are condensed schedules when it comes to the development and fielding and testing of certain types of military systems. So obviously all major military naval powers around the world are looking very intensely at the Ukrainian USV capabilities. Likewise, many countries around the world are looking at Russian to these USVs to understand exactly where they should be investing and where the technological emphasis should be on when it comes to these technologies. But so far, United States is a global leader. United States has operated in almost uncontested environment for nearly 20 years. And American drones like the Global Hawk, like Reaper, like the Predator, became synonymous with military UAVs around the world. But Ukrainian conflict is very different because each side in this war fields extensive amount of countermeasures, advanced air defense, advanced electronic warfare weapons, which makes it difficult for a lot of these drones to operate uncontested. And so now there's a lot of lessons learned about how to use these sophisticated military drones in a contested environment. Yeah, I can't help but think, I know this is not your area of expertise, but I can't help but think that, you know, war games moving forward about what potentially could happen in Taiwan will be directly impacted by what we're seeing play out today in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as well as other places, obviously. Yeah, it's, China is not my area of expertise, but the conflict in Taiwan would be different from the one in Ukraine because the one in Ukraine is a predominantly land and air conflict. And the conflict over Taiwan would be air and sea conflict. And so there's slightly different types of technologies at play. But for example, both China and Taiwan are invested heavily in kamikaze drone manufacturing and fielding. Short range to long range one way attack drones are now designed and built by both countries. Obviously, both countries are also looking at long-range and mid-range combat UAV and ISR capabilities, and probably both sides are also looking at fielding of different types of maritime drones to disrupt the adversary's logistics and shipping operations. So as we wind the conversation down, what is next? Like, What should we be on the lookout for? What do you see is coming across the board? It could be robotics, it could be unmanned, it could be AI. What do you think is going to be coming either within the Ukraine conflict or on a larger scale amongst these different disparate areas when it comes to military conflict? It would be a combination of what you have just described. We haven't touched a lot on, for example, ground-based robotics yet. 
we haven't talked a lot about artificial intelligence, but AI is used, for example, in Ukraine for data analysis and in decision-making capacity, basically assisting operators to understand the battlefield picture, to pinpoint the adversary, to identify this one particular goal, this one particular image and or sound or capacity out of the noise provided by multiple types of sensors feeding information back to the operators. And that could be video from quadcopters, it could be even social media, it could be any number of information sources. So artificial intelligence is helping people make sense of the noise and to identify exactly what needs to be identified going forward. So AI in this war and in future wars is going to be used as a decision-making tool, as a data analysis tool. When it comes to different types of UAVs and robotics, a lot of future developments will be impacted by the types of countermeasures that both Ukraine and Russia can field this year and next year against each other's forces. For example, some are saying that the era of commercial drones is coming to an end because of sophisticated electronic warfare capabilities available both for Ukraine and Russia to counter this capacity. Therefore, the next type of military drone obviously is going to be the long-range to mid-range combat drone that can fly far above and beyond the reach of air defense systems. But also, for example, more tactical short-range different types of drones will be necessary, both for large units as well as small units, which is what Ukraine and Russia are both demonstrating, that even small units today can have their own intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and combat capacity in the face of these quadcopters and FPV types of drones. So units going forward need to have this ISR capacity. They need to have combat capacity. Quite possibly, units going forward will need to field their own kamikaze-type drones, both for short-range as well as long-range missions. And so we're going to see an evolution of different types of tactical to mid-range drones coming out of this war with both sides probably designing, for example, long-range robust quadcopters that, that are hardened against electronic warfare, long-range kamikaze drones, both quadcopter and aircraft type that can fly farther than the current, for example, limit of five to seven kilometers that can penetrate up to 25 to 30 kilometers. Obviously, both sides are going to lean heavily on military-grade kamikaze drones. Ukraine is going to lean on its own developments. Russia will lean on Iranian-designed drones, as well as on some of their own domestic kamikaze drones like Landsats and Kubes, which it, it is already using. But a lot of that will actually depend on the type of war being fought, because a land conflict would be different than, for example, an aerial conflict. It would be different than a maritime conflict, especially one between and amongst peer powers. Sam, we obviously need to do another episode because we didn't get into half of the things that I wanted to with you. You're a wealth of knowledge and a repository of just incredible technical know-how when it comes to these areas. I want to thank you for coming on. If people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about your analysis and writing, there's the CNA website, but what's the best way for them to get engaged? They can follow me on Twitter, at Sam Bendet. Cool. And we'll provide all the socials and the handles when we repost as well. Thank you for the listeners. Please leave us a comment. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Sam, thank you again for coming on. We will have to do another episode. A question that we ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Well, I wake up really early. And when I do, first couple of minutes I spend before I start work is I try to center myself. And I just try to take a couple of deep breaths because I know that the information I'm going to view every day is going to be very stressful and it's going to impact how I operate every day. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Well, thank you again for coming on. We thank will you. do a follow episode. Really appreciate it. And I encourage all the listeners, please do give him a follow. He's producing incredible content and really is um, a great resource. So Sam, thank you again. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.